Welcome to Courage and Spice. This is the podcast for humans with self-doubt. I'll share evidence-based resources and teach you proven coaching tools to help you transcend your self-doubt. I'm Sass Petherick, a master coach and founder of the Self-Belief Coaching Academy. I'm so glad you're here. Let's do this. Hello everyone, Angela Brown has been a teacher, head teacher, executive leader for the last 20 years. She's set up a school, she's been a TEDx speaker, an author, a coach and a consultant. She's also a transformational coach for women that she calls, I think beautifully, luminaries. Successful women who are ready for more nurturing, more compassion so they can have influence and impact in the world. I can relate. So, Angela, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. It's such a pleasure to be here, Sass. Thank you so much for inviting me. Words are important to you. And, like, I know that part of your coaching uh, approach is about narrative coaching. You write so beautifully. You gather people together so they can talk to each other. You do lots of things with words. And I think one of the reasons that I really wanted to have this conversation with you was a newsletter you sent out and you wrote this amazing piece on what you were witnessing, a new paradigm of leadership. And in my world, leadership is really heavily connected to our self-belief and our sovereignty. And in your world, of course, you're working a lot in the education sector, an impossible hierarchy, all the systems and processes, all the all the constraints that are in education right now I just wonder if you can talk a bit to that and what that new paradigm looks like for you yeah that's such a good question I talk about leadership in sort of non-hierarchical forms because I spent so long battling the idea that I had of myself and that real sense of sovereignty and you know over self and real kind of belief that I should be something could be something and if only really the best possible expression of who I was in the world. And then meeting these hierarchies and thinking, ooh, I don't see a place for myself in that hierarchy. I just don't think I can operate in that way. I did manage to operate in that way at times. So I was one of those strange chameleons who could kind of be in the system and do the things that were required and get promoted and all of those things. But I I recall the moment that I really felt as though the search to try and get purchase on the hierarchy was actually really destroying that sense of sovereignty. Like the two things collided. Wow, what an amazing promotion. And oh, what an utter sense of lack of self I now have. And I encountered it intensely because I took on a headship and also had a son at the same time. My son was born and I went back to work after five months and I just remember the chaos of existing in a world that seemed to require so much from this leadership role and seemed to be saying, and yet you are capable of so little within this framework. The messages I got back were just constantly like, not enough, not enough, not enough. And that was in terms of what the world sees when women leave their babies after five months and go to work. And also what happens when you're in organisations and people's expectations of you. And some of that I realised was around my inability to construct what enough would look like and to articulate what enough would look like. And it was 
kind of in this moment of desperation, I was driving to work on the Muller Road, which you will know in Bristol. <laughs> and, you know, it's not the most seemly of roads. And I was in traffic and I um, just felt this overwhelming sense of lack. I just left my son with a nanny again. I was going to a job that I had become awful and unbearable. And I, and I thought, what would happen if I just said I can't do it? What would happen if I just went in and said I can't do it? And, it, you know, I kind of had a bit of a breakdown on the way to work. I was in floods of tears and I remember being in traffic and people looking at me through the window and kind of thinking, oh, this is awful. And then just come to this realisation. And by the time I reached Fish Ponds, which is a couple of miles in the traffic, probably took me about 45 minutes, realised that I could also choose to say, you're right, I can't do it. I can't do it under those conditions. And honestly, Sass, that was the breakthrough. That was the moment that I started to experiment with. What would it look like to do this differently? It was the first time I'd given myself permission to say that version of reality, that version of leadership, you're right, I can't do it. And to lean into, but I probably could do this version of leadership. And so I guess for me, that sort of new paradigm of leadership, of of women's leadership, is also the paradigm shift that occurs when we say, ah, it's okay to say that I can't do that. Because, whoa, look at this. (laughs) Look at this that emerges. Look at this that I really can do and will do and I'm going to do. And, you know, just hearing you describe that, I've kind of I don't know about anyone else listening, I've got goosebumps just at memories of having those moments myself. And I used to sob on the tube every now and then. So I totally understand that feeling of this is a public breakdown now. I think the way I approached it was there's something lacking in me that I can't survive in this environment because I didn't really grasp that the environment didn't care if I survived or not. And it wasn't until I was well out of it that I could see oh, I was never meant to succeed in that. I was never created to succeed in that. I guess I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Like looking back at that former self who was able to say, these conditions are never going to support my leadership. I cannot succeed here. So I have to do this differently. Mm, I mean, it just resonates so much. The realisation that I wasn't meant to. Not only that, that as a leader articulating that no human being is meant to. It just isn't what human beings can sustain. It is just the antithesis to human flourishing. That was a slow progression because I felt like at first I went through the, I can't do that version. And I took that on as a sort of personal failing, if you like. I remember the feeling of it not really feeling like a failure. I remember kind of owning it and feeling like, no, I just can't do it. That's okay. And just giving myself permission to be like totally the wrong person to be doing it in that system. But as I began to kind of, that's that situation where you start saying things and then you get familiar with the language and you start trying out new versions of it and you start pushing it a bit further and then you realise that other people are saying, yeah, yeah, that really resonates. And I began to explore this idea that maybe maybe it wasn't just me, maybe it was maybe it was women in leadership, maybe it was women who had kids who, you know, were kind of thinking about headship and maybe it looked like that. Or maybe it was women, maybe it was all women, maybe it was women and men. Oh, Maybe it was human beings and this kind of emerged as this picture of actually the way that this has been constructed 
flies in the face of everything I understand create the conditions for human flourishing. Which you're in the business of, right? Which we're in the business of. As a leader in a school, right? That's your whole reason for being. Yeah. That is the bread and butter. Yeah. So we're in this position where we are supposed to be adults worthy of imitation. We're in a position where we've got kids kind of going, yeah, that's that's a version of life that I can imagine living. That, that's the kind of person I can imagine being. And it's unthinkable then that we would show up and contort ourselves into these balls of anxiety and guilt and overwhelm and shame and all of that stuff. And work in particularly, you know, I was thinking about exactly that and work in schools. I love that description of we are the adults worthy of imitation. I've never heard that referenced before. It's beautiful. It comes from Steiner. So I spent a lot of time in um, working in a Steiner school. And it's the thing that resonated with me most about that education is that we are in, in education where we are we are to become adults worthy of imitation. And when you take that perspective on what leadership is and you apply it to leading other adults or leading communities, then we need to, I believe, ask ourselves some really searching questions about what that would look like. Because what we're condoning when we don't look at that says some really unspeakable things about what we feel human flourishing needs to look like. So there are some twin things in operation in me when I think about this new paradigm because on the one hand it gives me permission to be the person that I want to be to be the leader I want to be and to flourish in that role because Sass I have a real sense of being somebody born into the world to show leadership and I always have done so the thought of not being a leader was also unpalatable but this gives me permission to be a leader and the other thing it does is, is it, it gives permission for everybody that I work with, everybody that I touch, everybody whose lives I encounter to also step into that leadership role in a unique way. And then the third is it begins to try to leave a legacy for other people to say, oh, I can now see a place for myself in leadership, in world leadership, in community leadership, in education leadership, because it's being done differently. Thank goodness for traffic jams. <laughs> <laughs> On the road. road. <laughs> so, so I now have this image of you in your car going, right, we have to do this differently. And like th- all these beautiful ideas of what is opening up in that moment for you. That if I do this differently, if I do it my way, what's possible? And then I think, and this is, I think, one of the limitations of even working with with coaching clients, right, is no matter how full of self-belief that individual walks out of the room feeling, they then encounter the world. (laughs) And so I'm curious to know then, how did you begin that mammoth task of saying, okay, we are going to do this differently? How did you bring people along? So the Muller Road incident was the beginning of the end of my relationship with the school I was in at the time. And it was a sort of necessary ending because it was that epiphany that allowed me to do things I'd never done before. I'd never handed in my notice and said, I just don't think I can do this. I had stoically done everything till, you know, burnout. I would dream of it. And so there was some personal development necessary and that was you know tied up with that and and it's interesting because when I 
when I coach, I notice my mind often goes to where can we find permission to not be stoic, to not push on through. And I know that's my stuff, you know, that I have to be really quite careful about not bringing into the space often. Same. (laughs) Yeah, I really relate to that. Yeah. 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 I feel like it also probably would have been quite disingenuous for me to now, now I've revealed the secret to have then tried to take the people I was working with at that point with me on that journey, because in essence, it would have been completely reversing on ways of being and ways of working that would have felt like it pandered to my personal need to do things differently for myself, as opposed to the organisational need. And actually, the organisational need and the season the organisation was in was really another critical part of me leaving. And I do talk about this with leaders that part of doing it differently is doing things differently in organisations in which that can be sustained because the organisation itself is in that season, is is able to accommodate different ways of doing things. And because I work in schools, that wouldn't be something I would be saying to a leader who is in a school in special measures, although it might be actually quite brilliant, that there is a way of being that is probably going to be required to move that school on. So it wasn't until my next role that came, actually, I'd kind of imagined a big break in leadership. I'd imagined a sort of personal breakdown, a period of burnout, a huge gap where I rethought everything. I I handed my notice in and then I think within about three weeks had the next role already lined up for September. So there was no gap. But there was a huge paradigm shift and that gap in itself from one way of thinking to another made such a huge difference. And I remember going to the first day of training in the new organisation and I was lucky because it was an interim role. And I think, again, when I talk to people who are going into workplaces and they're trying to do things differently, the mindset of a person who is doing an interim role is really different from the mindset of the person who knows that they're doing something with permanence. And I don't think it's a bad mindset to try on when we're trying to change the way that we think about things, even if our job does have permanence. It's just to try on. Well, what if I was just 100 days? What if I just gave myself a permission slip for this to be something I'm trying? But such a fresh start, isn't it? Oh. I mean, you can kind of try on a whole different side of you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And see what happens because you've got nothing to lose. Nothing to lose and everything to gain, it turns out. Mm. So I walked into a hall of, of, you know, 100 plus members of staff and I tried everything out, everything differently. You know, new kinds of new sort of PowerPoint presentations with really incredible illustrations and and watercolours and no words. And it was like licence to do everything differently. And just the freedom of being able to think, I'm communicating visually, I'm communicating my creativity, I'm communicating where my heart is with this role, I'm communicating the spirit, the gesture with which I'm coming to be your new head teacher felt so liberating. And then I talked to them about leaving early and picking up my child and not being the first one in at the gates and don't expect to find me on emails at 11 at night and talk to them about what it meant for me to be able to say that to them and what I wanted them to be able to feel in terms of liberation themselves. And in my mind, there were 150 people sitting there with their arms crossed saying, you know, she's she's work shy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she went last. She's absolutely work shy. All of that stuff. So, 
So there's a lot of transference of my stuff onto people. So I keep coming back to this image of you walking into this hall. And I am curious to know what it was like to do that as a woman of colour. And does, does that matter to you as a leader? Is that something that you think about? Yeah, so it's, it's such a good question. And it did matter at that moment. So it wasn't something that I had been conscious about trying to be until around that time. The reason for that is is kind of a podcast for another time. But essentially, it was like the coming to be the person in the world, the leader in the world that I wanted to be coincided with wanting to also be the black woman, because that's who I am. So I wore my afro for the first time. And, you know, just, I mean, it never been, it was just always kind of tied back. And, you know, I, I was quite conscious about, no, it's going it's to it's gonna be out. I'm going to be, you know, this is the person I am. I was kind of really reshaping what it would look like for me to be, be this person in the world and this leader. And so for the first time, I talked about race. I talked about diversity, equity and inclusion in that role in a way that I made, you know, I deliberately did centre myself and say, these are these are the experiences I had as a child attending a school like this one that we're working in. These are the implications of working in this way. I really pushed back on exclusions around black boys in particular in a way that I think previously I would have felt, oh, they're going to think that I'm just doing this because I'm a black person and, and really just really took ownership of it and spent in that role quite a bit of time beginning to create a persona of, of somebody who was a black woman in the world. And it, it hasn't mattered to me in the past. I mean, in the sense that I haven't acted on it, but it does matter to me now because I feel as though this sort of playing small or hiding that dimension of myself ties in with the legacy that I lead. Increasingly, what became apparent about me being in a leadership role was that not only was I a unicorn, I was a really, really exciting unicorn for people who looked like me who were also women. So I would get calls from people who would say, could I coach them? Because they were also a black woman who had a small child and they were thinking that they wanted to go into headship. And I would say, I don't know if I'm really the right person because that all that is, is is kind of you profiling me and saying I'm bound to know how to coach you better and I don't know if I can. You know, sometimes you kind of have people calling you and then you kind of realise that maybe that's your calling. You kind of can't avoid it. It can only be asked so many times before you... You look a little bit ridiculous. No, I will not coach you. No, I will not coach you either or you. And then what happened when I began to say yes was that I realised if I take me out of it, I take the why Why am I not being seen as somebody other than a black woman who's been an educator and has a child? If I decenter myself in that, there is some really, really exciting role I can play in terms of legacy and in terms of making that space a place that other women of colour see for themselves. And so it has become the mission to say, yeah, this is this is what it looks like and to do that differently, because what we don't need are loads of people thinking, well, that's what black women who do leadership look like. What we need is the tapestry of difference. And so I am almost obsessed with how differently can I show up today? What other thing can I say to confound? What are you not expecting me to do? Because I feel like that's the gift. 
is saying, are you black and queer? Are you black and trans? Are you black and disabled? Are you, you know, are you a woman who's not having children? Or like the full diversity of what it means to be a woman, a person, an individual in any workplace. And that is just like a really exciting place to be for me. Well, and that to me is the importance of representation, because when you're the only person who's in the room with ovaries or a trans person or a black person, then you have to somehow represent your kind. It's the weirdest expectation that we have. But actually, if there's 17 women in a room of, you know, 25 men, we don't give a toss. It's like, well, just what do you think? You suddenly become yourself again rather than a representative So I kind of feel like I use being a black woman as a teaching tool now more than I feel like, oh, everyone wants me to represent something. I feel like there is a moment in social change when some people just have to suck it up. And, you know, I can withstand, not only withstand, I can be representative of certain things in certain situations if if that's necessary because my work is bigger than that the mission is bigger than that the ambition is bigger than that it's bigger than me and so if it means that that's sometimes what's required then great but it means I can also be really playful with my stories I can be really judicious about how I bring race into things when I do it and that that feels really empowering and I'm in charge of that I have massive amounts of agency over how I use my story when I tell it who I tell it to and on some days I say Sorry, too exhausted. <laughs> Not doing the labour. <laughs> Not doing the labour today, friends. Confounding, isn't it? Yeah, amazing. I love it so much. I love it so much. So I, I'm curious to know if there is anything you would want to say to your former self on the Muller Road <laughs> who had this epiphany that's led you down this amazing path that benefits so many of us. Like, If you had seen her, what would you like to have yelled through the car window? I think as she's having that kind of weeping, (laughs) weeping moment, and I remember asking for help. I remember saying, you know, I, I just tell me what to do. I can't do this. And I think I would say to her, you're absolutely bloody right. You can't do this. You can't. I mean, that is the trail of breadcrumbs. You're damn right, girl. Get yourself out of there. And then I would say the better it gets, the better it gets, because, oh, God, the empowerment of those decisions that look like they're breakdowns, that are breakdowns and they're massive breakthroughs. It's just been incredible. Well, it's such a joy to know you. I'm just, I I read your newsletters and we chat every now and then and it's like, oh my goodness, look at what you're doing now. So cool. Oh, it's so nice to know you too, Sass. Thank you so much for this conversation. I always appreciate conversations with you hey if you're ready to explore more about your self-doubt i want to invite you to take the self-doubt archetypes quiz it's totally free and you'll uncover your particular flavor of self-doubt it turns out self-doubt is not this amorphous cloud of woe There are 12 different types of self-doubt and finding out yours is the first step to getting a handle on it. Just head over to www.sasspetherick.com backslash archetype for all the details.